This podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. This is a parable about the eternal consequences of social distancing. I know, right? Oh, the irony. It starts in an entirely predictable way. There's a rich man and a poor man, and you already know the opening scene. The rich man, astride his powerful horse, thunders along the road, his fine purple robe and perfectly groomed hair flying artfully behind him as he sweeps past the poor man, shivering in the mud at the gate of his enormous castle, without even noticing him. It's a scene designed to make one point. These two men might exist in the same place, but they are worlds apart. They couldn't be more socially distant if they tried. And then we're told rather abruptly, frankly, that the poor man dies, which doesn't come as much as a surprise. We know that poverty doesn't really do wonders for one's life expectancy. But what's slightly surprising is that the rich man dies too, which I can only assume is due to bad genetics or bad luck. Perhaps he choked on his caviar. Either way, these men who shared little in life now share together in the universal experience of death. And the real surprise comes as the curtain is pulled back and we get a glimpse into that mystery of mysteries, life after death. Let's listen to what happens next as Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man from Luke's Gospel. Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from over there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You know Lazarus. You've seen his face many times. He's the guy sitting near the entrance to the train station, staring at the ground with his hat turned upside down. 
He's the woman who sleeps in her car near the toilet block by the park because at least there's running water there. He is the lump in the sleeping bag tucked into the doorway of the office block you walk past that reeks of sweat and who knows what. Not only can you put a face to Lazarus, you can put a feeling too. Seeing Lazarus, no matter how far off, always elicits a feeling. Sometimes it's care and compassion. Other times it's guilt or annoyance or revulsion. Without even saying anything, Lazarus's presence is a question. Do you see me? Will you acknowledge me? How will you respond to me today? A question we often resent. Lazarus is always inconvenient, but he's also unforgettable. Despite our attempts to avoid eye contact, seeing Lazarus is like being haunted by the ghosts of all of the Lazaruses we've ever met. Which is why I think Lazarus is the only person in all of the parables that Jesus tells who gets a name. Every other person in Jesus' parables is a farmer or a master or a sower or a servant. But here Jesus says his name and in doing so forces some of us to say Lazarus's name for the first time too. In comparison to the visceral reality of Lazarus, the rich man is like a cardboard cutout. He performs the privilege of richness in all the ways that we'd expect. Even while burning in torment in Hades, he's still true to type, still treating Lazarus as beneath him, bossing him around, telling him to go fetch some water. And when that doesn't work, trying to get Father Abraham to dispatch Lazarus as a messenger to his beloved family. Even as the hairs on the rich man's legs are being singed by the flames, he remains numb, numb to the irony of requesting a merciful drop of water from a man he has never contemplated extending a drop of mercy to in his life. Part of the picture we have wrong about hell is that we think that shortly after realising exactly where they are, everyone must be frantic, climbing over the top of one another, desperate to find a way out. But the rich man doesn't ask to leave, and he certainly doesn't sound frantic. He makes no gesture towards owning his mistakes. He demonstrates no curiosity about what landed him there in the first place. Not even the flames of hell are enough to make the rich man reconsider his ways. I wonder, why is that? Dallas Willard once wrote, hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. The rich man's been avoiding God all of his life. I mean, who needs God interfering in things when you can just get what you want yourself? The rich man's entire life, his whole identity has been formed by one pursuit. His life goal was to secure himself and his family, enabling them to live a life such that they, every good thing was within their reach. 
the best food, the best clothes, the best education and opportunities for his kids, the best of all the world and what it had to offer. And he was wildly successful at it. As Abraham says, this good thing he wanted, well, he received it and he received it in abundance in life. And having received his good thing and having passed through the threshold from life to life after death, leaving all of his good things on the other side, what now is left? Just the vestiges of a human heart that has been so shaped by the pursuit of wealth, by the perpetuation of wealth and the performance of wealth that even after the wealth is no more, the rich man is incapable of being anything other than a rich man. It's all he's ever known. It's all he ever will know. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that because you're not wealthy, you'll never fall into the trap of the rich man. The wealth wasn't the trap. The trap was placing anything but God as his highest priority. Taking his life into his own hands and directing it towards a particular goal, a specific good thing, was the point at which the rich man stumbled. And let's face it, we all have our good things. Whether it's a career goal or a creative goal or a relational goal or a goal never to have a goal, such is the nature of human desire that we can turn anything, becoming an actuary or an artist or a partner or even a parent, into our good thing that leaves God on the outside of our lives looking in. Well, if that's true, how does that apply to Lazarus? What was his good thing? A good thing that left him in the bosom of Abraham rather than burning in Hades. Surely Jesus isn't saying that poverty is a good thing. No, no, he's not. Remember that Lazarus is the only person Jesus gives a name to in all of his parables. As you would expect, it's not just any name. The name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. So this is a story that contrasts a man who experienced great suffering in life but found his help in God with another man who sought the help of a healthy bank account and found it living a life of comfort. And the picture Jesus paints with this story is that ultimately both men get exactly what they wanted. Just let that sink in for a moment. Both men get exactly what they wanted. I wonder what is the good thing you are really seeking? Not what you say you're seeking or think you should be seeking, but what are you actually seeking? And what if you actually got what you're seeking? And not just what if you got it in this life, think long-term, think eternity. What if the thing you wanted was the thing you were left with for all time? Where would that leave you in the life that's to come? Would you be sweating it out with the rich man or hanging out with Lazarus and Abraham? It's a confronting question, isn't it? 
The thing that really encourages me about this parable is towards the ending. The part where the rich man tries to frankly shift the blame, implying that he's the victim of some kind of injustice because no one gave him the right information. Because if they'd given him the right information, if someone had told him the truth, for goodness sake, he wouldn't be standing there in agony like some kind of human torch. So I beg you, Father Abraham, can you please like update the terms and conditions on your website and design some kind of social media campaign so as not to make the same mistake again? In fact, it seems only fair that you send Lazarus to my five brothers right now so at least they can avoid this whole situation in the future. To which Father Abraham replies, you've had the whole truth since day one. Nothing has been hidden. No, no one needs a secret decodering or special knowledge. Moses and the prophets have been rather loudly spreading the word, speaking the truth for, well, centuries. It's been written down in books, turned into poetry, given voice to in song. It's been woven into tapestries and rendered in stained glass. It's even been printed on tea towels. Time and time again, when people ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer has been clearly given. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. Do this and you will live. So where does that leave us? Yes, the rich man is a victim of his own choices. He loved wealth more than he loved God. But he also failed to love his neighbour as himself. And his neighbour, of course, is Lazarus. Sitting in the mud each day, Lazarus's presence posed questions we all know very well. Do you see me? Will you acknowledge me? How will you respond to me today? And every time the rich man looked past Lazarus as he swept through the gate, he answered, no, I don't see you. No, I will not acknowledge you. No, I will not respond to you today. And so yet again, God gives the rich man exactly what he asked for. The gate the rich man constructed to keep Lazarus out, to keep him socially distant, has been made permanent. And now in the life after death, the gate has become a great chasm. And now it's the rich man who's on the outside looking in. Friends, Jesus is speaking directly to us in this parable, for we are all gatekeepers. We build gates at school and gates in the workplace. We set up gates in our homes and even gates in our churches. There are gates made of friendship and skill and power, gates forged by culture and class and race and gender and sexuality and beauty and fear and any human preoccupation you can name. And Jesus is saying to us gatekeepers, to the ones who would seek to define who is in and who is out, be careful, be very careful. That gate you're building 
just might become the chasm you end up standing on the wrong side of for eternity. I know I just said I found this ending encouraging and I I really do mean that. Firstly, because as tough as the warning is to hear from Jesus, at, at least we get to hear it. At least we can clearly understand what has been offered to us and what has been asked of us. And I'm so grateful that even now, even today, there is still time to turn around and to go in a new direction. Still time to reorient our lives around a truly good thing that will last for eternity. The peace and wholeness offered to us in and through God. Secondly, I'm encouraged because like all of Jesus' parables, this parable tells us something about the nature of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the great gate opener, that he has been given the keys to every lock that ever was. And as his ministry on earth demonstrates through the feeding of the hungry and the healing of the sick and the rising of the dead, he will open every gate and set every captive free. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you, my followers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm so encouraged. I'm so excited because Jesus passes on to us his church, this ministry of binding and loosing, this ministry of being gate openers. And I can see it here. I see it here at New Hope through the work of New Hope Community Care in feeding the hungry, through New Hope Medical in healing the sick, through so many New Hopers reaching out in love to their neighbours each and every day of every week. And I know that this year, as it comes to an end and Melbourne begins to open back up, we're all beginning to slowly put into practice some of the decisions that we've been making about the kind of lives we want to lead. And I hope that this season of disruption has helped to clarify that both this good thing that you're longing for in your own life and in the world should be your priority. And I can think of nothing better than giving myself more fully to this loving God with all of my heart, mind, soul and strength and to loving my neighbour with all that I am just as I love myself. And I hope that together, empowered by the Spirit of God as a church, that we can be gate openers, gate openers in this divided and hurting world and that we can point people to a loving God. Amen.